Hello, I'm Paul Bristol and I'm working with the Scottish Communities Climate Action Network to find and share stories of community-led climate action. I've decided to do something a little different with the last podcast of the year. I'm a bit of a sucker for Christmas specials, so that's kind of what this is. A sort of selection box of stories. Throughout the year, as I've been talking about or recording stories, I've spoken a bit about the role of traditional stories and how we tell stories today. And so, this episode, we're going to share some tales, some traditional, some inspired by folklore, but all with a connection to environmental, ecological and climate concerns. And they all have a nice wintry feel to them as well, so perhaps you can download and listen while you're off crunching through the morning frost or huddled in by the fire. I'll leave that one up to you. And as it's the season of giving and goodwill, I also asked some of our previous contributors if they could share a book recommendation with us to tell us about a book they read that made a a genuine difference to them, that maybe inspires their climate activism. And I got some wonderful and surprising answers, which we'll share with you. And then maybe you can pop along to your local bookshop and treat someone, even if that's just yourself. No judgments, it's been a tough year. We're going to start with a story from the wonderful storyteller, Alison Galbraith. Alison specialises in telling environmental stories. It's well worth checking out Dancing with Trees, a collection of eco-tales from the British Isles, which was written by Alison and Alette J. Willis. Alison was a storyteller who delivered my own storytelling training some years ago, and I've been lucky enough to work with her a couple of times since then. She's telling the next story, especially for us. The Twelve Months, a folktale from the Czech Republic, retold by Alison Galbraith. Marushka lived with her stepmother and stepsister in a small house in the countryside. Stepmother hated Marushka because she was so much prettier than her own daughter, Helena. Together, stepmother and Helena made Marushka's life miserable. She had to look after the cow, chop firewood, cook, clean, grow vegetables and fetch well water while they sat idle. Every day, Helena became more bad-tempered and sour-faced, while Marushka grew prettier and kinder. Stepmother knew that no one would ever fall in love with Helena while Marushka was around, so she made a plan to get rid of Marushka. One morning, Stepmother told Marushka, You must go to the woods and pick sweet violets to brighten the room. But, Stepmama, it's midwinter. Violets don't grow until spring. You impudent girl! Stepmother grabbed Marushka by the ear and pushed her out of the door. Go and fetch violets or I will beat you! Marushka stumbled through the snow to look for the flowers. She shivered as she scraped amongst frozen tree roots. There were no plants growing under the leaf litter. She walked and searched for miles. The north wind blew ice and frost around her. She felt so cold that she wanted to lie down and sleep under the winter sky. Then Marushka noticed light flickering through the trees. She walked in that direction and saw a fire upon the top of a small hill. There, set in a circle around the bonfire, were twelve men seated on rocks. Three of the men were very old with white hair. Three were slightly younger with grey hair, 
Three were middle-aged and three were young lads. Each of them held a wooden stick and sat silently gazing into the fire. Marushka approached timidly. Excuse me, but could I warm myself at your fire? The twelve men looked at Marushka in surprise. The oldest, who wore a white robe, spoke. What are you doing out at the coldest time of the year? It is my month. I am December. Why are you here, child? Marushka explained. Stepmother has sent me to pick violets to make our home look cheery. But flowers do not grow here in my month. Only winter trees. What will happen to you if you return without violets? Stepmother will beat me. We can't have that. Come and heat yourself by our fire. Perhaps Brother March will help you. December stood up, and so did the youngest of the twelve months. He was a boy dressed all in green. He skipped nimbly past his brothers and exchanged places with December. Brother March swept his stick of hazel over the fire. The flames roared up in a dancing plume of orange. Instantly, the snow melted, the trees burst into bud, and the birds began singing their songs of spring awakening. Quickly, girl, look amongst the trees and grass for violets. Take as many as you want. Marushka foraged amongst the lush green grass and plucked a handful of purple violets. She thanked the twelve months for their help. When Marushka arrived home, Stepmother and Helena were surprised that she had not died of cold. When they saw the bunch of fresh violets, they were flabbergasted. Where did you get these? barked Stepmother. At Stone Circle Hill, said Marushka, and then she went to bed. The next morning, Stepmother ordered her to go and fetch strawberries for her sister. But Stepmother... Strawberries don't grow in the winter, protested Marushka. Stepmother grabbed her roughly by the shoulders and shook Marushka hard. If you don't find strawberries, then I'll beat you with the broom. She pushed the frightened girl out of the door. Marushka ran straight to Stone Circle Hill. There were the twelve brothers sitting around their fire. Ah, you again, child. Why are you here today? asked December. Marushka explained that she had been told to find strawberries for her sister. But strawberries don't grow in my month. What will your stepmother do if you do not return with strawberries? She will beat me with the broom. December shook his head sadly. Then come and warm yourself by our fire. A rosy-cheeked man who sat opposite December stood up. I think it is me who can help with strawberries. It was Brother June. December swapped seats with him, and Brother June waved his rosewood staff over the fire. The flames leapt and danced, making everything glow pink. The snow melted, trees and flowers bloomed, birds and animals chattered and sang as midsummer returned to the land. Quickly now, pick as many strawberries as you like, June said warmly. From little white and yellow flowers, plump ripe strawberries burst forth. Marushka filled her apron with the berries and thanked the twelve brothers politely. Stepmother and sister couldn't believe their eyes when Marushka arrived home with strawberries. 
the wicked pair grabbed handfuls of berries and crammed their mouths so full that juice ran down their chins. Marushka went to bed. In the morning, stepmother and Helena grabbed Marushka, twisting her wrists so tightly that she cried in pain, Please stop, you're hurting me! Where did you get those delicious berries? screeched Helena. On Stone Circle Hill, replied Marushka. Well, go back there and get me some apples, demanded Helena. But apples don't grow in winter, Helena. Get apples, screamed stepmother. Oh, I will kill you. They threw Marushka out into the snow and slammed the door. She ran as fast as a girl with no snowshoes can to the hill where the twelve brothers were sitting peacefully around their fire. Hello, young one. What does your stepmother want now? asked December. I'm sorry, December. They want apples. Then tell me, what will happen if you do not bring them apples? Tears filled Marushka's eyes. Stepmama said she would kill me. Well, come and warm your cold fingers by the fire, and Brother September will help you, for apples grow in his month. September, dressed all in russet red, swapped seats with December. He waved his staff of rowan over the fire, which crackled and sparked, smoke swirling high. Immediately the snow melted, and the earth and grass turned golden. The trees dropped their leaves and the bushes appeared laden with berries and hips. An apple tree stood at the edge of the woods, its branches heavy with bright red apples. Go, lass, and pick only the fruits that fall to the ground, said September. As Marushka approached the tree, two apples fell and landed at her feet. She picked them up turned to the brothers and thanked them with all her heart. Your kindness has saved my life. I will remember you forever, dear months of the year. Thank you. Each brother raised their wooden staffs in salute. Marushka ran home, while Helena waited at the door. She placed the two apples into Helena's outstretched hands. Stepmother grabbed one, and the two gobbled up the crisp fruits. Helena turned on Marushka. Where are the rest? Did you eat them all? You greedy, selfish brat, I want more. Stepmother grabbed Marushka and shook her violently. Give your sister more apples this instant, you wicked cur. But Stepmama, only two apples fell to the ground, and September said that was all I was to take. September, screamed her sister. I will tell him, whoever he is, how many apples I may have. Helena turned to her mother. I'll go there myself, Mamma. Give me your warmest fur coat and I will get more apples. Stepmother gave Helena her finest fur coat and mittens. Wrapped up snugly, Helena left the house, sneering at her stepsister. I will take as many flowers, berries and apples as I like. When Helena reached Stone Circle Hill, she stomped right up to the twelve brothers, marched past them, and warmed her hands at their fire. December asked her who she was and what she wanted. Helena scowled angrily at him. It's none of your business, old white beard. I'm here for more apples. Now, where are they? December did not like this girl's behaviour at all. Angered by her rudeness, he stood up 
and shook his holly staff over the fire. The fire spluttered and died down, and the fierce north wind blew a hurricane of icy snowflakes over the hill. Clutching the furs tightly around her, Helena stumbled out of the stone circle. She ran to shelter in the woods, but the storm gusted furiously about her. She fell into a deep snowdrift. Helena was lost in the blizzard. Back at home, Stepmother watched as the wind swept thick snow over the land. Worried for her daughter, she put on her second best fur coat. With one last angry scowl at Marushka, she hissed, I'm going to fetch my dear child from this dreadful storm. Make supper for our return. Then stepmother battled out into the winter tempest. Marushka cooked dinner and made hot chocolate. She waited all night by the fire, but stepmother and Helena never returned. Marushka continued living in the house, but she was much happier with no one scolding and beating her. She never felt lonely because Marushka knew that the twelve brothers were on the hill, tending to the seasons, each month bringing its own gifts for all of us to share. There's been a lot of discussion this year about how we value creativity both emotionally and financially, especially in a year when we've spent so much time locked indoors, watching television, listening to radio, reading, using creative outputs as a coping mechanism. I read more this year than I have in a long time, revisiting comfortable familiar classics and then trying things I never would. And in the springtime, I found myself more drawn to books which visited and explored other places, in particular Robert McFarlane's Underland, whereas now I'm reading classic confined and chilly ghost stories, as I always do at this time of year. I was interested to hear from some of our guests about what they'd been reading. Here's Jo McNamara from Sustaining Dunbar with her recommendation. I suppose the kind of I like the people who, who who write who who kind of come at it in a in in a kind of oblique way and make you um make you think about it. Uh, I mean, I think there was a a, a really I mean, it was a few years back um a, a American writer Barbara Kingsolver and um, a book called Flight Behavior, um, and. This is a, a wonderful, it's a, it, it's a novel and ostensibly it's not about climate change. It's very much about people. It's very much about communities. And it's about what happens in a, in a community, during the kind of the, 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 the west of, of America, when at an unseasonal time, the migration of the monarch butterflies, these butterflies, they come in winter. Um, and through that, it, it, it throws up all of the stories of, of the people in that community, how they, they respond to it, the kind of tensions between them. But kind of underpinning it all is this kind of strangeness, this odd strangeness. And it, it just kind of makes you think about what if, what if this, this strange thing happened? I mean, we kind of look at our weather now and we think, what if the climate, um, you know, starts to change and we can't, we can't, you know, things are all out of sync. What if? Um, and so this book kind of uh, looks at that, but in a very, very subtle kind of way, but through telling people's stories. 
I mean, she what she really creates is this really strong sense of character. Uh, and there's this there's this kind of woman who's at the heart of it. This woman, young woman called Della Robbia. And they're all. I mean, it's like kind of a community sort of. They're, they're like you know, kind of um, in um, you know in in Virginia. You know, the kind of you know people up in the, on on the edge of the world. You know. Um, and you know they live they live on their wits you know life ain't too great for them and so like so some people in the in the kind of in the group they see oh god you know all these butterflies have come right let's get the tourists in right um, and then you have all the kind of academics who come to kind of study this as this amazing phenomena um, and Donna Robbie is at a kind of a period where she's bringing up kids on her own you know it's, life's all kind of falling out about her. and bit by bit she kind of gets drawn in to working with the academics and it changes her life. So it's a wonderful story about people and hope and possibility and yeah, yeah, it's excellent. I think often when we, we imagine environmental or, or climate focused books, we tend to think non-fiction, so it's good to come at it from a different angle. Let's take a little journey now into our story grotto to hear a traditional tale from Ukraine, which might give you some original ideas for how to decorate your Christmas tree. Not so long ago and not so far from here, there was a little cottage right at the edge of a forest. In the cottage lived a widow and her two young children. The widow had lost her husband some years back, who went off to the war and never returned. But before he left, he and his children planted a pine cone from the forest in a pot by the door, and he told them he would be back to help them decorate it when it had grown into a tree. The tree grew sure enough and the children grew, and Christmas drew near but the widow knew her husband would not be returning home. It had been a hard winter and there was little money, but as she watched her children skip off the bed, talking excitedly about how they would be decorating the tree the next day, the widow thought of a way to try and make the tree a little less sad. Taking her old yellow dress, which had faded these last few years, she cut out a cloth star and put it at the top of the tree. Then she went to bed, hoping that her children would be happy to see it in the morning. All three of them huddled together against the cold. As they slept, the spiders crept from all the dark places in the house. The little family were always kind to spiders, never chasing them out of the house or brushing away their webs before they had eaten. The spiders saw the little tree and the cloth star, and they decided to help decorate the tree too. They worked all through the night, spinning and weaving their webs across the tree. Then they scuttled back into the rafters and corners to sleep until morning. It so happened that St Nicholas passed the cottage in the forest. He saw a little tree with a tattered cloth star and saw how the spiders tried to help by covering the branches in their dusty grey webs. He decided to help the family and the spiders out too. St Nicholas took an old leather pouch from the pocket of his great coat and from it took out the gold and silver sand which he sprinkled all across the tree. And the webs turned to strands of silver and glittered like a morning frost and the cloth star turned to gold. The little family and the spiders woke that Christmas morning to a tree that sparkled bright enough to light the room. And with all the silver and gold, the little family never wanted for anything again, though they always took care to leave a window open for spiders in the autumn and let them stay all through the winter. So there we go, spider webs on your tree. There's some beautiful images of spider web decorations to be found online along with just some scary images of big spiders and trees, just be careful which ones you click on. Our next book recommendation is from Hannah Ewan from the community Carrot, 
And as you might expect, it's a book about food. B. Wilson's First Bite, How We Learn to Eat, is a book that started everything for me. It's how I taught my daughter to eat and it's how I teach children and adults to eat. Um, yeah, so if there's one book people would to recommend people to read, it would be that one. Um, she explores the Tiny Taste programme, which was a UCL, University College London programme. It worked with autistic children who had incredibly restricted diets and it was trying to encourage them to um, expand their diets and to not be afraid of new foods. And it laid out the basis of now how I work in, in um, cooking classes and in kids' food journey, which is you take a tiny amount of something, you try that. There's absolutely no pressure to eat it. You just have to engage with this tiny morsel. And then over time, you, you grow it, you eat a little bit more, you try something else, you eat a tiny bit of that, you eat a little bit more. And before you know it, a couple of weeks later, you've expanded your food horizons. And it, that's really what it comes down to is um, I've seen it work again and again. And once we can convince people to enjoy a wider range of food everything becomes possible really with eating because it's it is about being familiar and about it's about it's not about restricting anything particular but it is about enjoying um, a whole range of of different foods so yeah that's been the most useful um practical guidance for me i'm still working up to trying more things christmas is actually when i get most adventurous and i have a homemade nut roast Genuinely, my food highlight of the year. Back to our story grotto now. And the next folktale is inspired by some of the ways in which another insect helps provide for us in the winter months. Snow bees. Everyone knows that bees hibernate in the winter, hiding away from the frost and snow. Of course, the problem with things that everyone, everybody knows is that everyone doesn't know everything. There are bees, many bees. There are the bees of the Snow Queen, which swarm and swirl around her like snowflakes in a storm. There are the bees who hum Christmas carols in their hives on Christmas Eve. There are the bees of the evergreen islands who toil in the holly and mistletoe. The iron monks harvest the honey for meat, which only the old gods can drink. Most important of all are the silver bees who live at the top of the world. As the end of each year draws near, someone is chosen to leave the village, to walk through the forests and across the ice fields to visit the beekeepers. All through the year, the bees have worked hard to capture every glimmer of sunshine in the dark days, the best of the moonlight from the cold nights. The beekeepers take the wax from the silver snow beehives and melt it over oak log fires before carving the solstice candle. The enormous candle is laid on a large sled and hauled across the snow back to the village in time for turning of the year. The work of the silver bees means that the solstice candle burns longer and brighter than any other candle bringing light and darkness time of the year when the village needs it most. So yes, there are bees in the winter, many bees, and the best of them help light our way back to the spring. Bees are embedded in ancient myths and folklore right from the get-go, from ancient 
Sumerian and Babylonian texts right through to beekeeper folk wisdom. And here's a wee bonus book recommendation from me, The Sacred Bee by Hilda M. Ransom. It was first published in 1937, but I was given a reprinted copy for Christmas a few years back. It's a lovely exploration of interdependency and ancient respect for nature. Ideal for enjoying with a warmed mead. Our final book recommendation comes from Rosie Harrison from East Linton Repair Café. Pigtail by Helen Oxenbury was first published in 1973 and was one of my favourite books as a child. I'd been looking for a copy for my young daughter, so when I stumbled across it in a charity shop last year, I was delighted. In a nutshell, it's about two pigs, Bertha and Briggs, who, despite having everything they need on the farm, are bored and aspire to the life of the 1%. Bertha and Briggs were never content. On money and riches, their two minds were bent. There were so many wonderful things they would do, only then would they really be happy they knew. From their field, they dream of owning a big house with all the latest mod cons and driving a fancy car. One day, while wallowing in the mud, they stumble across a treasure chest. Suddenly everything is possible. They run to the bank, exchange treasure for cash and start living the dream. It doesn't take long for things to start going wrong. Bertha and Briggs become stressed by the demands of polishing the car, phone calls, watching TV, aimless pottering. After a particularly stressful day, on which Briggs's car breaks down and Bertha's blender explodes, they agree they've been working so hard they've had no time to play. The life they imagined for all its shiny exterior has turned out to be tough. From that moment on, nothing seemed to go right. House, garden and pigs were a terrible sight. Finally, they can't stand it any more. From the garden, they gaze at the country beyond, and Briggs, in a rage, pushes his car in the pond. They throw off their clothes and run back to their field, finally content with what they have. The illustrations in this book are brilliant, details well observed from human life and nature and translated into pigtail. It's a simple message that the grass is not necessarily greener, that excessive riches don't equate to contentment, and one that we can all relate to in one way or another. The message feels particularly significant at the moment, when everyone's individual and family worlds have shrunk because of lockdown and restrictions. Many of us are perhaps recognising that we don't have to go far to find what we need, that what matters to us and makes us happy is closer than we thought. There's so much amazing children's fiction that celebrates the importance of the natural world and the environment. And yet, generally, we move from these colourful, illustrated, upbeat visions that we read when we're young into grim, post-apocalyptic visions of environmental collapse. There are books that attempt to fill that gap, in particular the sci-fi genres that are referred to as solar punk or hope punk which imagine more positive futures rather than the tried and tested dystopias we're all used to. This might be something we'll come back to in the new year. In fact, at the top of my new year reading list is some optimistic non-fiction, a book recommended by a number of folks while I've been interviewing them, Rutger Bregman's Humankind, A Hopeful History, which challenges the notion that humans are inherently selfish and instead sets out to prove that people are ultimately good that feels like a good way to start 2021. I'd like to thank Alison Gilbraith for that lovely recording of the 12 months and Joe McNamara, Hannah Ewan and Rosie Harrison for their book recommendations. And as for the rest of the stories, well, it's been a bit of a family affair. My son Ben read The Christmas Spiders, my daughter Molly read The Snow Bees and my eldest son Connor provided the music and sound effects. He also recorded the usual music. Stories were written by myself. 
All the very best to you and yours as the year turns. Hopefully, you'll find some time to share some stories and memories of your own this month, even if it's just over Zoom. Thanks for listening to A Thousand Better Stories from the Scottish Communities Climate Action Network. If there's something happening in your community, be sure to let us know. You can drop me a line at stories at scottishcommunitiescan.org.uk In the new year, we'll be running workshops to help you tell and share your story of climate action. Check out the website and sign up for our newsletter to keep up to date.